0: Hello, and welcome to the Innovation Forum Podcast for Friday, seventeenth November, with me in Welsh. Bumper episode this week with more insights from the recent Innovation Forum Autumn Event Series. At the Sustainable Commodities and Landscapes Conference in Amsterdam, I spoke with Palaba Sharma from Global Rights Compliance, Olivier Tichet from Musa and Giorgio Budi Indrato from Man Dani. And from the Future of Climate Action event last week will be some comments from Adam Tarr, formerly Senior Advisor to the US Secretary of Agriculture, and Ashley Burkhart from German Eight Ventures. That's all to come. First is some sustainable business news. The latest ZSL spot assessment of 100 leading palm oil companies shows improving commitment by the sector to tackling deforestation, with two-thirds of the companies committed to net zero deforestation ahead of the December 2024 rollout of the European Union's deforestation regulation. However, the challenge is going to be in disclosure to ensure compliance as less than 12% of the companies have made public the geolocation of supplier plantations, which is essential data for verifying zero deforestation and integral to meeting the EUDR requirements. Just under 54% of the companies have publicly disclosed locations of their own plantations and less than 16% of managed small suppliers specifically. Clearly there is a sector wide need for significant investment in traceability, perhaps a potential benefit of the EUDR. But how smallholders will be included remains unclear. Stay listening for more on this issue from recent conference participants coming up shortly. Environmental campaigning group Mighty Earth has released research into the impact of the cashew sector in Cote d'Ivoire. The West African nation is the world's top exporter of cashew, worth just under a billion dollars in 2021, representing over a million tons of nuts from 1.5 million hectares under cultivation. The total global cashew market is estimated at $7 billion. Cote d'Ivoire has had significant deforestation impacts over the past few decades. Mighty Earth says the country has seen as much as a 25% loss of primary forest between 2019 and 2023, and over 90% loss in the last 30 years. Cocoa farming has been the main driver of this, but cashew is now threatening forested savanna landscapes that are crucial for biodiversity. In some instances, farmers are becoming over reliant on cashew markets, which can crash in times of supply glut. Mighty Earth is calling on the sector to collaborate to help farmers with more sustainable practices and to restore landscapes. The group also wants to see the development of more transparency and banning of products linked to deforestation. All eyes are turning towards the COP28 UN climate talks in Dubai, and many are hoping for a meeting that reflects the energy and progress made in Glasgow two years ago, rather than the more lackluster events in Sharm El Sheikh in 2022. As ever, urgent action is necessary. A new UN report finds that the current national plans, the so-called nationally determined contributions to reduce emissions, will actually lead to a combined 888 increase by 2030 compared to 2010 levels. To achieve the Paris Accord target of holding global temperature rise to 1.5 Celsius requires a cut in emissions of 45% by 2030. There is a chink of light in that the combined plans were found last year to be leading to an increase of over 10%, so the direction of travel is at least in the right direction. Also more positive is the report from the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, concluding that if the 75 countries that have submitted long-term plans follow through in their commitments, their emissions will decline 63% by 2050 from 2019 levels. These countries represent 68% of all of the global population and 77% of global greenhouse gas emissions. When we were in Amsterdam at the Sustainable Commodities and Landscapes Conference, I spoke with Pallavi Sharma, Agricultural Commodities Senior Lead at Global Rights Compliance, Olivier Tichet, Director of Sustainability at Mass; and Giorgio Budi-Indrarto, Deputy Director at Mandani. I'm with Pallavi Sharma from the Global Rights Compliance. Welcome. Thank you. We had a session earlier today when we talked at some length about the EU deforestation regulation. Perhaps you can give us some context as to how you see the EUDR's potential impact uh, is evolving, how you think it's evolving.
1: It's the talk of the town in the legal circles these days. It's one of the sustainability legislations that have been rolled out already, and it's part of a state of legislations that are going to come out. In terms of the emerging impact, I think one of the things that we need to watch out for is the benchmarking methodology that the EU is going to adopt to rank countries as low, standard, or high risk. Article 29 in the regulation, it does give a clear set of criteria that the EU would be following when they are considering the benchmarking methodology. It includes things like the rate of deforestation in the country, the trends in production of these relevant commodities, the agricultural land expansion in these commodities. It also talks about the participation in data sharing by these producing countries as well as the general state of compliance of laws on deforestation and human rights uh, and indigenous peoples in these countries. It's a pretty tall order under Article 29 in terms of what the EU wants to consider decides on the methodology. However, we are yet to find out what this methodology is going to look like. Is it going to be commodity based? Is it going to be sub-national or is it going to be national? Just to unpack it a little bit, let's take the hypothetical example of coffee being produced with deforestation in India. So would India be high risk for just coffee? Would India be high risk in those regions that produce coffee? or India be high risks for all the seven commodities under the EUDR. So we are still to find out what is the EU thinking and what the methodology is going to look like. This is one of the emerging impacts that I'll keep an eye out for.
0: And of course, we're speaking in November 2023. Yes. We're only 14 months out.
1: Yes, it's very relevant because the timelines are really short. It's about a year and a half for SMEs from now and a year for non-SMEs from now. So we really need to get started right away.
0: Well, I think everyone was pleased that at least somebody in the room had read the regulations. (laughs) We were all very pleased that somebody had. Um, How do you see the EUDR aligning or clashing with other due diligence regulations that are emerging?
1: If I just take the example of the Corporate Sustainability Due Diligence Directive, which is Mm. the behemoth legislation that's expected to come out in the next couple of months, I would say that they are broadly aligned in their goals. Both focus on encouraging responsible business conduct. In the operations of businesses and both focus on sustainable sustainability down to the last levels of the supply chain they are more or less aligned in their goals however there are some key differences between the two and if i could just name a few for you since we don't have the time to do a whole thesis on this the first would be that the EUDR it adopts a commodity approach which means that only companies irrespective of the size they could be micro companies they could be big listed companies with ten thousands of employees As long as they deal in these commodities, they have to be compliant. The directive, on the other hand, it takes a turnover and a number of employee approach. So if you're a company which has more than X number of employees, I think it's 500 employees and a 150 million euro global turnover, then you have to be compliant with the directive. And there are other conditions as well for compliances. The second would be the penalty. So for the regulation, the penalty is actually quite strict. It's an all or nothing strict liability where you have to conduct your due diligence, you have to mitigate the risks that you identify, and you have to ultimately ensure that there is no deforestation associated with the products that you're placing on the EU markets, which is slightly different from the directive where your burden is to conduct due diligence and take reasonable measures. Under the directive, you could also be sued for damages by victims whose rights have been impacted because of your acts or omissions, which is not the case with the regulation. So there are a few structural differences between how these two would operate. uh.
0: As I said, we are 14 months out of the implementation date. How do you expect things to develop between now and the end of 2024?
1: For one, I'm expecting some guidance from the EU, and they've promised they're going to come out with it, and (laughs) they will come out of it, especially on one agriculture land and how it is defined. And second, where do private certification schemes sit in this broader landscape of the EUDR? So the EU is going to come out with clarificatory answers, and that's something we should watch out for. In terms of where we stand, my suggestion for companies would be just presume that you are going to be sourcing from a high-risk company and start setting up your systems now. Do not wait for the kickoff date of a year or a year and a half from now. Just presume you're sourcing from a high-risk country and start now. I think
0: you're right. It just seems that there's an urgent need for everybody to, Absolutely. to be getting, getting on with it. Thanks very much, Pahlavi Sharma, Great. from the Global Rights Compliance. I'm joined by Olivier Tichet from Muslim Mass. Welcome. Thank you very much, Ian. We've had an awful lot of conversations over the last couple of days about the uh, European Union's deforestation regulation. It's dominated conversations in a way that I can't remember any single issue dominating conversations across the conference before. Musa Mass have announced recently that for you, you may have to remove some smallholders from your supply chains because of the regulation. Can you explain exactly what it is that you've announced you're
2: going to do and why? Well, first, I agree with you, I think. Even if we tried not to speak about the UDR, it came up into the the discussion, so it shows, I think, how much we all care about it or how much we're afraid of it. So, as far as smallholders are concerned, it's a problem that the UDR is asking us for strict compliance, no tolerance, not even for small farmers. If we look at the risk that's represented by the UDR, by the UDR implementation, we will have to exclude non-compliant producers, but we will have also to de-risk so smallholders represent accumulated a bigger risk because of their size and because of the fact that many of them might not have, for example, land rights, documents. Because of that, they will not be compliant, the way the regulation is explained today. And so we cannot just exclude one smallholder here, one smallholder there. It means most of the smallholders will have to be excluded from the European supply chains, which is extremely unfortunate, which goes completely against what we are doing as MoSIMAS. But which will be a consequence. I cannot expose us or our customers to the risk of sanction which is in the regulation.
0: So what's the solution then? I mean are you looking for the EU to revise the regulations ahead of implementation in 2024?
2: Well first I would love the EU to tell us what is actually the requirement. Example, legality. Does it mean that smallers all must have a land title, which is something which is quite unfair to many of them, which might push them to very costly procedures? Or is it just a matter of being in legal areas to grow their products? So that kind of thing might be where the EU has a way of easing smallholders back into the EU supply chain. So that's what we're expecting from the EU. Clarify what are the requirements, find ways to keep it inclusive to smallholders. And it can be a stepped approach. It can be that at the beginning the requirements are a bit more lenient, still going in the same direction, still trying to exclude uh, deforestation. But then you get more and more, after giving some support, get more and more into a stricter type of compliance. But you will have enabled the smallholders to be compliant.
0: Is there any element of of bluff calling in your announcement and trying to maneuver the European Union into change?
2: I don't think we alone can manipulate the European Union. I wish, but I don't think so. That's one. Second, we are not very good at bluffing. Usually we do what we say. It's not bluff. We will have to exclude. And the EU is not a small market, but it's not such a huge market that we cannot exclude smallers and still cover the requirements of the EU. What it will do, on the other hand, is that it will narrow the supply base for the EU, it will make it a lot more expensive, and I think the EU is not winning financially, it's not winning in terms of resilience because it will have a narrow supply base, and morally it's definitely not winning. Mm-hmm. Any other unintended consequences of EUDR that you see coming? The one I mentioned, I think it's going to be more expensive. There's going to be tensions with governments because it's quite tough, the, the UDR, it, it came very brutally, and, and the EU was apparently not ready for its implementation, for, to explain how we're going to implement. so But maybe the good side of it is that because it started on the wrong foot, everybody's going to make extra efforts mm-hmm. now to try to find out how we're going to actually make it work. Maybe today, maybe in one, two years' time, three years' time, Let's, maybe that will be the good thing coming out of it. One
0: thing we did talk about was the potential impact on the commodities futures market. How do you think they will be impacted by the regulation potentially?
2: That's something that confused me. So I, I used to be in coffee, so I, that's something that confused me greatly. The stocks of the exchange market for coffee and uh, I think for cocoa as well, the certified stocks or the stocks of the market are placed in the UK, but also in Europe. I do not understand how it's going to function. If you take delivery of stocks, how is it going to function? Are they in scope of the UDR, out of scope of the UDR? How is it going to physically work? And that worries me because then it upsets the market. And the coffee and cocoa markets are what we can call perfect markets. And they are critical to the price discovery of all producers of Robusta and of cocoa. Why upset that? It's a pretty big risk that the UDR is bringing to those markets which really do not need it.
0: How then do you think things will play out over the next 14 months? We're talking here in November 2023, implementation is December 2024. What's going to happen do you think between now and then?
2: Only two things can happen. Either there will be a very big, truthful, very open consultation and we're going to find ways of making it so that in particular smallers remain included in the, in the regulation or there's going to be massive changes in the supply chains for the EU. That would be unfortunate and very costly.
0: We'll see what happens over the next year and Let's maybe we'll still be talking about it in 12
2: months' time. I'm sure we're going to be talking about it in 12 months' time, definitely. Thank you. Ian. I love you, Tisha. Thank you very much. I'm joined by
0: Giorgio Budi-Indrato, who's the director of Mandani. Why don't you start by just giving us a bit of background to the work of Mandani.
3: Yeah, Madani is actually an organization that built in 2016 and we are trying to convene actors of the civil society movement and also the company and the government actors to work together to create an innovative solution to create sustainability.
0: We talked yesterday specifically about the upcoming European Union Deforestation Regulation. What's the Indonesian perspective on the regulation? Well, the perspective
3: is kind of different between groups and there's a spectrum of that differentiation on each group. But in general, some of us is really angry with this situation. But some of us try to think that, okay, this is momentum to change. And I think that group need to be addressed. There are some notes that they have uh, on how this need to be moved forward. Sure.
0: I mean, it's no doubt well-meaning legislation. The the intent to eliminate deforestation in in corporate supply chains is the right intent. I guess it's just the the process of getting there is one that has its people who are for and against it, should we say? I agree, and I always
3: said that we are reading the same book, right? Even EU, everyone is reading the same book of sustainability, but in different chapter. Indonesia probably in chapter one, and EU already chapter ten. But we are having in the same book. We are aiming at the right direction now, but uh, how to reach at the same pace for this part.
0: Clearly one of the big challenges is going to be around data, farmer data, getting the right data points yeah. to enable impacts to be assessed and, and for deforestation to be addressed. Yeah. What are the challenges for farmers in particular in Indonesia around the data, relating to EUDR and other data?
3: Actually on the data, far before the EUDR required data and the polygon. Indonesia government already have the requirement of having a polygon for the small holders so the data is there actually, but not all, we still have challenge to implement that uh, regulation. The challenge is more on the capacity and but the ability of the government to collect the data because Indonesia is quite wide and to create that possibility, I think this is the, the momentum for EUDR, cooperative joining forces with Indonesia to make that happen. And it's possible, I think, because so many NGOs already doing that. The data is now on the government and some part of it in the company and we just need to put the data on the table but again the notes is important that some of the government of Indonesia still think that the data are confidential we need to clarify what kind of a data that we need to open for the traceability aspect
0: And I'd imagine that investments required what sort of investment levels would you like to see and into what in Indonesia?
3: Yeah, I think the investments are not always necessarily about financial investment, but also it could be in-kind investment. I mean, the system that's already being built with SFLK for example, we can mimic that. And the technical assistance from the EU to build some kind of a system with the data that we already generate so far, it also could be helpful. At the end of the day, I think what we need now is sit into the same table, understand the same problem that we have, even the European also facing the same problem. If this being implemented without any investment whatsoever, time, dialogue and everything, nothing going to happen. And this is something that we need to address together as a nation between Indonesia and EU. That's sure.
0: Right. I think certainly one of the main conclusions from the conference is that there needs to be thought and dialogue around the implementation of, of the EUDR. So that a well-meaning legislation or the intent that is well-meaning can be introduced in a way that works and it yes. delivers on that intent.
3: Yes, yes. And I think that the openness, the inclusiveness of how this EUDR should be followed up in the future is also need to be addressed, which is, it's kind of a difficult now to get information about the EUDR and to get involvement on the EUDR. Even if we invite some of the EU delegate, it's quite difficult to get their attention. Now we're talking about the joint task force, that's also difficult to get into and some of our colleagues already get into the European Joint Task Force, the NGO, and the European NGO. But they said, it's, well, it's just a meeting, nothing meaningful there. I think the dialogue needs to happen in genuine level. From the Commission, need to understand and listen to what, what's happening on the ground.
0: Let's see what happens. Giorgio, sure. thanks so much indeed. All right. Thank you, Ian. In Washington, DC, at the Future of Climate Action Conference, I spoke with Adam Tarr, formerly Senior Advisor to the US Secretary of Agriculture, and Ashley Burkhardt, Chief Scientific Officer at Germany Ventures. I'm with Adam Tarr, he was with the Invariate Group, and he's a former staffer in Congress. Welcome, Adam. Good to be here. You are involved in the work for the Inflation Reduction Act. Perhaps give us a little bit of insight as to what it was designed to achieve.
4: Well, at the outset, the Inflation Reduction Act was designed to touch on a number of priorities of the Democratic Party. It was a sprawling bill that probably touched all sectors of the economy. At the end of the day, it ended up being something much more modest but significant. A comprehensive piece of climate legislation that was really designed to clean up the electric power sector and to put the United States on a path towards meeting our Paris Accord agreement.
0: And specifically then for business, what were the provisions that were included?
4: This is not a regulatory bill, right? This isn't a regulatory scheme. It is an incentive-based program, primarily designed for business, right? You have a variety of tax credits in play, production tax credits, investment tax credits, policies that were designed to really boost domestic American manufacturing of clean energy technologies, and the deployment of those technologies. That's probably a little more than half of the bill, and then the remainder would be grants, loans, direct spending on clean energy technologies. I mean, sorry to day still, but how are you seeing it playing out? Is it successfully rolling out, do you think? It is successfully rolling out to the extent that it's rolled out. This is a bill the peculiar nature of the legislation It was crammed through a unique parliamentary procedure just given how closely government was divided in the narrow majority that Democrats have in the Senate, which means that you're really limited to spending and you're limited to doing it over sort of a 10-year window. So the bill doesn't say, hey, here's $360 million, go spend it. In fact, it's sort of spread out over time. And so you see tax incentives in the nuclear power space, in the biofuel space. The rules are still being developed by the Treasury Department, right? And so we won't actually even know who qualifies, how they qualify, or what uptake is like until 2025, 2026.
0: And do you think a consensus has developed around you know its longevity? I mean, is it here to stay, or is there potential for being rolled back as we go forward? A little bit
4: of both. Like I said, this is a bill that looks out over the next 10 years, and in fact. The Congressional Budget Office and the Joint Committee on Taxation, which estimate the impacts of this legislation, they see the biggest impacts, the biggest spending occurring in 2031. So will Congress tweak these laws between now and then? Most likely. I don't see a full-scale rollback. You know, these you brought together folks from the business sector here. When this legislation was passed, it was touted by environmentalists as as a monumental piece of legislation. So there's broad support for these policies. I don't see a full rollback. But certainly you could see some tweaks between now and nine years from now. Yeah,
0: I mean, business likes consistency. So there's going to be clearly, and we've heard some voices reflecting that today. This is the way we are going. This is the direction of travel, and it'd be very difficult to pull it back and change direction entirely. I mean, how do you see things panning out over the next, say, five years?
4: You know, I mentioned a little bit on the panel, we've got a farm bill to be written, right? So over the next two years, you're going to see... Congress take a look at the climate incentives and the Inflation Reduction Act and say, hey, do we want to modify these a little bit? And then again, hopefully Treasury gets these rules out on time and we see significant uptake and deployment of some of these technologies between now and five years from now.
0: Well, let's see. Uh, Adam Tarr, thanks very much.
4: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
0: I'm joined by Ashley Burkett from Germany Ventures. Welcome, Ashley. Give us a quick intro to yourself and your work.
5: Okay, my name is Ashley Burkhardt and I'm the Chief Scientific Officer at Germany Adventures which is a venture capital firm that impact invests in the food and ag space. I also serve as an associate in the environment and natural resources program at Harvard Kennedy School, part of the Belfer Center, where I've led some study groups and events on innovation investment in in regenerative agriculture. And then lastly, my background is a medical doctor. It's a little unusual for people in this space. Um, I practice as a GI liver pathologist and have grant funded research. So I've been looking at guts and butts for over a decade. Part of the reason I got interested in this space is the healthcare system wasn't paying enough attention to food and the food system wasn't paying enough attention to health.
0: We've been talking just now about carbon markets, particularly the evolution of the voluntary carbon markets, uh, the reduction projects and the removal projects. Now, I know you're focusing very much on nature-based carbon removal projects. Talk to us a bit about those, what you're seeing developing, and how they can best scale.
5: First of all, a lot of people don't realize this, but only 5% of our offsets go to removal or sequestration or drawdown. You can use many different terms for it. And I think a really helpful metric to understand why this is really important is many times we're always talking about the 1.5 degree Celsius metric, but that's confusing when it comes to drawdown. If you start thinking about it parts per million, Before the Industrial Revolution, we had 280 parts per million. Now, the parts per million of carbon dioxide in our air is 421, and scientists believe that 350 is our safe place. With that in mind, if you start thinking about just reducing emissions isn't going to help with reversing our anthropogenic so that's where we have to uh, focus on drawdown. Now, there are industrial solutions and there are nature-based solutions. When we think of industrial solutions, the one that usually comes to people's mind is direct like, air capture. It's very measurable, which is great as an industrial solution, but it's just not very scalable, and there aren't any of these other benefits that I'm going to talk about with the nature-based solution. Nature-based solution, again, we have a lot of different options, such as afforestation, sinking, kelp, biochar, but the most scalable and the one that I'm most interested in and I think would have the biggest impact is soil health. The reason is is, uh, for every 1% increase in soil organic matter, You actually lock away 10 more tons of carbon and 20,000 more gallons of water. Soil is home to 25% of the world's biodiversity. So you're actually dialing back on your water crisis, your biodiversity crisis, your climate crisis. But it also has all of these other benefits, which we need to focus on, such as improving resilience, improving farmer profits, because they have less input costs and, again, eventually yield. Lastly, there's evidence of nutrient density, higher nutrient density among food, there's some emerging evidence. So with all of these in mind, you would think, well then why are we not adopting this? And there are real challenges. One of the things I want to bring up is that 93% of farmers know about carbon farming, but only 3% are engaging.
0: Is that in the U.S. or worldwide?
5: That statistic I believe is in the U.S. Just to point out, though, on a worldwide scale, if we could actually get this to to scale, a UN scientist did model that if you could get 50% of farmers to increase their soil organic matter by 1%, that would be enough to draw down 31 gigatons of carbon which is three times the amount of the transportation sector. It's really important to be targeting this audience. The question is, why are they not engaging? And this is where we can focus on looking at the challenges, but then also looking at them as opportunities.
0: How do we turn this into a market? Because that's the solution that farmers want. They need to see the benefits for them financially. So how do we turn all this into a market?
5: First of all, our market already has some challenges to it. When you just look at carbon markets in general, there's a lot of distrust among farmers. It requires permanence, which makes sense. That should be the case when it comes to a carbon market, but that means a lot of times I have to sign contracts that are long-term, which makes them uncomfortable. There are now different options. For example, soil organic matter has been the focus. Now there's some Looking at soil inorganic matter, where you could actually drive a better market price and it sinks the carbon permanently for like thousands of years. The price is now too low to incentivize farmers. That's an issue. And to be honest with you, you have to kind of change the narrative because it can't be about climate change. They're more interested in land stewardship and profits. And so how do you change that narrative into this is about your profit, this is about your land stewardship. And then specifically, there's what I would identify as four obstacles that pertain specifically to farmers in general. One is financial, it's costly to change your practices. And so we need both policy and we need innovation and investment that help front load the farmer with the capital to be able to move in this direction and also de-risk the whole thing, and this would include putting language into Title V of the Farm Bill on credit, but again, also having new enterprise models in the private sector. It includes cultural, technical, educational. That's a really big one, so you know, how do you communicate this among the small communities of farmers who all talk among themselves? Again, on the policy side, this is making more robust, robust statements for the Farm Bill that would help the USDA enable more education and technical support, but also it's the private sector, there are companies like Klim, there are companies like Tinium and Andes Ag that are helping farmers actually like engage in these markets. Lastly, you, there's policies that impact barriers, so we have to think about what policies are doing that. Then the supply chain. A lot of times people don't think about that, but we don't have the supply chain infrastructure to allow for regenerative ag to flourish, and so that also has to be dealt with simultaneously in order for them to engage in these carbon markets.
0: Certainly seems to be huge potential here. We yeah. see how it all develops. Perhaps we can talk about it again next year. But for now, Ashley, thank you very much indeed.
5: Thank you so much. Nice to be here.
0: The Innovation Forum website is as ever the place to go for all the usual analysis and interviews. Just published is a new piece of analysis into some of the decarbonisation challenges facing the agriculture sector, so do look out for that. We'll be back with the Monday briefing next week and the podcast on Thursday as usual. But that's it for now. I've been Ian Welsh, and until next time, Goodbye.